Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Yonatan Halevi. Rabbi Halevi studied at the Ner Yisrael Rabbinical College in Baltimore, Maryland for five years before pursuing his rabbinical ordination at the Sheheber Sephardic Center in Jerusalem. Rabbi Yonatan received his rabbinical ordination from Rabbi Yaakov Peretz and Rabbi Shlomo Kassin in Jerusalem, specializing in the laws of Kashrut, marriage, family purity, and Giyur. After founding the Jerusalem Rabbinical Academy in 2010, served as his Mashkiach Ruchani, Dean of Students until its closing in 2012, with a graduating class of 11 young American Kashrut supervisors. Rabbi Yonatan was also a rabbi and teacher at Yeshiva or Oraita, as well as Israelites coordinator of alumni affairs and rabbinic education. Each week, you could find Rabbi Yonatan teaching a unique class on Sephardic Jewish history at Midreshet Eshel, a Sephardic girl seminary in the old city of Jerusalem. For years after living in the old city of Jerusalem, just up the stairs from the western wall, Rabbi Yonatan relocated to San Diego, California, where he entered the world of practical rabbinics and communal work, founding the Shiviti movement in 2015. Rabbi Yonatan is married to Rabbanit Devora, his partner and supporter in all things good, as well as co-spiritual leader of Shiviti and Kilat Sha'ar Shamaim. Rabbi Yonatan is most actively involved in teaching Torah through the various branches of the Shiviti movement, namely Kehilat Shar HaShamayim, the Shiviti Beit Midrash of San Diego, the Shiviti Beit Midrash of Los Angeles, and the Shiviti Beit Midrash of the United Kingdom. Rabbi Yonatan teaches classes on various topics in Judaism, such as Tanakh, Mishnah, Talmud, Jewish law, ethics, philosophy, as well as many other lectures dealing with a wide range of contemporary issues in Judaism. Rabbi Yonatan also serves on the Shiviti Beit Din, in arms of Shiviti's rabbinic division, currently specializing in conversion to Judaism. Without further ado, Rabbi Yonatan Halevi. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. We're so excited to have you, Arav Halevi. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what it is that you do today with your community? Of course. So, shalom lechem. Thank you for having me here. Uh, both of you, it's a pleasure to be here and to learn with you. And I, I've been a fan of this podcast for a while now since we started speaking about it. Mamash, I've been watching your videos and about what you do for, for Kali. So you're bringing a very special brand of Torah out to the world and it's it's uh, very impressive. Yeah, thank you. Bless you with success in that. Um, I'm from San Diego, California. And uh, maybe a, a little bit about my background before I tell you what I do. So I grew up here in San Diego. I was born to Israeli parents who are of Yemenite and Moroccan background. So the Sephardic sides come from two very different worlds, but the, both of them were that way. I was raised here in San Diego in a very Eurocentric, out-of-town Jewish experience. Baruch Hashem, I went to wonderful schools, but they were standard day schools here in California. I later went off to Baltimore, to near Israel, where I served my time. I spent the five years there. I cannot say that I'm a poster child for Ner Israel, so I'm not sure I get give much nachat to the institution, but it's a very special place where I was able to learn a lot of Torah. I still have connections with a, a number of beautiful Tamidech Ramim from there. From there, I went to Eretz Yisrael, and I should add, I grew up here in San Diego, not just in the day school, but in a Chabad Jewish community. So the community was run by a Chabad house uh, that my parents actually helped start back in the day. And when I went off to Israel, I was in this place of the Judaism that I was learning in yeshiva, the Judaism that I'd grown up with, I was old enough to recognize that it didn't sit well with me. And it definitely didn't feel like the Judaism that I saw my grandparents observe, or even my parents observe, 
though I never was really able to articulate what those things were. What are the differences? Why am I feeling certain the feelings or, or, or dissonance with, with the messages that I've been taught? And so I always had that reputation, like I was questioning too much, I was asking too much, I was being too um, strong-minded or independent. Those are very bad words in certain yeshivas. So don't be too independent, don't think too much. You're asking, like those are certain... And really, I, I decided, listen, I got to change the scenery. I need to go to Israel before I start university. My parents, of course, got to go to college and, and do all of that. So I went to Israel. And Mamash, it's by accident. I mean, I believe it's Min Shemaya, But by accident, I ended up in the yeshiva of Mori Harav Yaakov Peretz. He should live and be well. And that was like a mistake of the mistakes. Like, it didn't match anywhere that I had come from. It didn't match anywhere I was going. I hope that no one in the yeshiva hears this, but if I had to give a medal of the world's most dysfunctional Jewish institution, that would be the medal of honor that the yeshiva received. Like nobody knows what's going on over there. Everybody's there. All kinds of people are there. And in all of that chaos, they've managed to send hundreds of rabbis around the world to do different things in different places. And I remember meeting Harav Peretz. It was Elul, 2008. No, yeah, 2008. I'm sitting in Yerushalayim. I come from a very rigid, what does yeshiva look like? What do rabbis look like? How do they speak? What do they say? What do they not say? And in comes Sarah Peretz and says some like outlandish halachot. Like, outlandish in, in my context, of course, not in, in the context of halacha. I say like, who does he think he is? Like, he can argue with Rabbi Ovidia Yosef. Like, who, who's this guy? And I was like, certain mindsets I just, were, were like from... I saw a Rosh Yeshiva take off his jacket in public. And it's like a capital offense in some in some places. And it's, a lot of things were happening here. And I, I remember telling my parents, okay, after Sukkot, I'm just going to transfer to one of those American Yeshivot where all my friends go to. And about six weeks in, because that was when Elul almost was finishing, and, and I, I said, why does he bother me so much? Like, what is bothering me about this guy? Because this man is asking me to think differently than I've ever thought before. And that's very uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable that I just don't want to do it. And I'm resentful at him for it. But what if I just waited a little more and tried? What if I just, let's say, let's try to think that way. What's going to happen? I should be open-minded enough. I'm a big boy. What's going to happen to me? And so I I started thinking differently. And I opened up my mind and my heart to a different perspective, a different message. And I have never left. I've tried to learn Torah in many different places ever since. But I've never been able to feel the way that I feel inside of that particular Ben Midrash. And... I thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for that experience for two reasons. One, it changed my life. I could have been one of those dime a dozen Sephardic rabbis who are Sephardic only in their Sidur and the, the, the book of Halachot that they follow, but everything else is pretty much not. And I don't mean anything bad about them, but I could have been that. I very much could have ended up there. But the second side is I thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for that experience because I understand just how hard it is to lose all the things that you believe in while still trying to find the truth. I know how difficult it is to have to reconfigure the way you look at the world and how you think of the world. And I think sometimes when we come to talk to people about Judaism being different than maybe the way they were told or the way they were taught or the way the community tells them to think, we're not so sensitive to that pain of transition. It's a pain of you're asking me to get rid of things that are so dear to me that that I, I don't know what to do anymore. And I think because I went through that. And when I went through that and the sensitivity with which my teacher taught me and guided me and let me evolve into my own person without dictating too much and asking too much, that experience changed everything. After a while of studying in Yerushalayim, I came back to San Diego, California, where I was the rabbi of a small community. Things didn't work out well. They didn't like that type of rabbi in Akila. After three or four years of being there, I got thrown out of my face. And uh, Baruch Hashem, that was a Thursday night on a 
Friday night, I was sitting with my wife on my couch and I told my wife, I said, I don't know what we're going to do. I got thrown out of my bed. I said, I don't have a job. I don't have, I don't know where I'm going to pay rent from next month. So Shabbat, either we'll go back to Israel like we always want to do, or or I'll find another better Knesset. We'll figure it out after Shabbat. It's Friday night. I'm sitting on my couch with my wife. We're about don't I don't know, you say that I pray with my wife on the couch. I don't know if you're allowed to say that nowadays. <laughs> I was sitting with my wife on the couch. We started praying Kabbalah Shabbat. There's a knock on my door. I open the door and it's 40 of my congregants at the front door. And I said, What are you guys doing here? I said, We didn't fire the rabbi. We go wherever you go. And at that moment, we started Kilat Shavayim in my living room. We were there for about six months. But these are, this is my Kila. They're, they're the people that they came with me when, when nobody else was willing to go with me. And at that moment in time, I told them, I don't want to just be the rabbi of a community. I realized how, how fragile communities are and that work is you invest your life and then one day you have nothing and there's a limit to what you can influence in the Jewish community through traditional rabbinic models of, of leadership. I said, if you allow me to open up my own nonprofit organization, Shibiti, I will always be your rabbi tequila, but let me do everything else that I feel I need to do for the Jewish world. And we'll do this where I'll be your rabbi, but you let me have the freedom to, to explore all the other things I need to explore. And so we opened up Shiviti together. Under that, we have a bedin for a conversion in Los Angeles. Uh, we have Baruch Hashem Batei Midrash, mostly virtual, but we travel in between them in a number of different places, Los Angeles, New York, the United Kingdom. Uh, Baruch Hashem, we're right now working on Portland, Oregon, a few other places that we get around to and we learn with on a regular basis. And aside from that, I have my very, very tiny, it's very small, this room is not a big room, a very small kila, which allows me a place to pray. It's a little quiet corner of the universe where I have my dearest friends and congregants, but I get to focus the rest of my time on teaching Torah and writing and sharing and, and just bringing Torah to the world. And so I couldn't do that without my small kila. People always try to say, when oh, you move to a bigger community, I get job buffers in different places. I say, the menuchat nefesh that I experience here and the, the freedom to speak and not worry about a board or a sisterhood or the president of the ritual committee coming after me or whatever, the Rosh Hashiva of town, whoever is going to be chasing me, I don't have to worry about any of that. I have my chibah, we pray together, that's all I need. And then I get to learn Torah with anyone in the world who's willing to learn Torah with me. So thank you for being willing to bring me on here. And I think that summarizes what I do. Yeah, and um, I, I got to say that your videos, your Shiviti uh, productions on YouTube are phenomenal. Like yeah. they're... They're not too long, not too short, very clear. And I share it with people who are religious, not religious, women, whoever. And everybody has a great reaction to them. So, you know, Kola Kavod for these videos are really amazing. Um, it's going to lead us. It's going to this actually will help us segue into the next topic because you kind of touched on this idea. Um, what are the differences between Sephardim and Ashkenazim? regarding halakha and hashkafa, and can we ever bridge the cultural and religious divide? That's a huge question. <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer pieces of it, and please don't stop when I'm done. Like, push me in the directions you want to go with it. Can we bridge the religious divide? I'm going to start with the second question first. Even though you're not supposed to, I'm going to start with the second question and then get back to the first one. And it has to do with what you started off with. I married the most non-Sephardic woman in the world. So, Baruch Hashem, Hashem found me, my zivug. Uh, I married my wife, Devorah, uh, who, I don't know why that makes sounds. I think I just disappeared. No, no, you're good. Sorry, Heva. Yeah. I married my wife, Devorah, who comes from Borough Park, 
her father was the Menahel of Yeshivat Karlin Stolen of Borough Park for 50 years. And then he made Aliyah to Israel, not to Ranana or Herzliya or wherever else you might think. He made Aliyah straight to downtown Meshari, uh, literally right next door to the Satmar Synagogue over there. Which Avera he did in his life that I'm his son-in-law, I don't know. But uh, Hashem, I have the most incredible wife in the world. And our worlds could not have been more different. Forget just Sephardic Ashkenazi. You're talking about San Diego. You're talking about Barra Park and Mash. I was like, it's like worlds Ultimately that as well. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't yeah. collide in any direction, like culturally, religiously, in any way you can imagine. And and I think that we have the most beautiful relationship and home together. And so the answer is, can we bridge the divide culturally? I do it every single day of my life. Now, it's something that is possible. On a, on a larger scale, it has tremendous challenges. And so as much as I think my relationship is incredible and I, I think that our home is wonderful, I'll tell you a story that's personal, but it's important because it will illustrate what we're talking about. When I came home, maybe three weeks after getting married, I was a rabbi of Akila. I come home and I enter the was a little apartment. I open the front door. I see my wife crying on the table in front of her Shabbat candles, like sobbing her eyes out. Now I'm going through my young Chatan checklist. So flowers, check, you know, the food, check, and take out the trash, check. Like, like all the things I did. What, did. what did I do? What did I say? Did I hurt her? I said Shabbat Shalom before I left. I said, I love you. Like, I didn't I didn't know what was going on. I come and said, I said hey, what's going on? Is something wrong? She said, yes, everything is wrong. I said, what's wrong? And my wife has a, a video called uh, From Hasidic Woman to Rabbanit of Shibiti, uh, which, in which she talks about the story. She said, listen, I love you very much, but I love my God more than I love you. And ever since I married you, I feel like I have changed religions. I feel everything that I know to be true about Hashem, about Torah, about mitzvot, about Judaism, about halakha. Listen, I believe you that, that, that that's what it says in the book. And I believe you that that's what Rabbi Peret does. And I believe, but it, it's, it's nothing like what I know. And I'm choosing my God over you. <laughs> and at that moment, I realized it doesn't matter how much two people love each other. But if there is no basic level of education, because communication is great. We just communicated a problem. But if there's no basic education of what are we what are we talking about? What is different? How, how does this work? Then everything is going to just fall apart. And so I told my wife, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to do anything different than the way you did it in your parents' house. You Keep your sidul, keep your accent, light Shabbat candles, whatever you, do, whatever you do, do it. And I promise you that from now on, you and I are going to learn every single thing that we do in our house. We're going to learn it together. We're going to open up Gemarot. We're going to open up Bet Yosef. We're going to open up Rambam. We're going to open up Rishonim, Macharonim. We're going to open all the books we need to open. And every decision, you're going to reach it on your own. And if I'm wrong, then then I'll, I'll admit that. And if not, at least we will learn together. And I don't think we've stopped. It's been 10 years. We haven't stopped learning together. But mm -hmm. my wife today always says that she is Sephardic by choice, not by marriage. She didn't marry Sephardic. She chose this path intentionally. Because precisely because of what it is that we learn, and so can we bridge the divide? Absolutely. But in order to bridge divides, we have to be willing to learn together and admit when we're not correct. And so that goes to the first question. So what is the divide? I have a dear friend of mine who is a he's, a, he's quite an elderly gentleman. He could be getting close to eighty. He's an Ashkenazi rabbi who became Sephardic at a young age. He studied by Chacham Yosef. He learned by Harav Kapach, uh, and but but he is ethnically as Ashkenazi as you possibly could get. I remember I was once with him and somebody was arguing with him and said, but I'm Ashkenazi. He says, that's also a curable illness. You know, you're able to cure this. I said, Rabbi, that's that's quite a controversial thing to say. And he said, let me explain to you. In my years of understanding, I don't find a common Sephardic or Ashkenazi umbrella I could just stick everything on. The major difference that I see 
between Sephardic Chachamim and Ashkenazi Chachamim, you don't have to agree, is that both of them admit that we can make mistakes. One of them always tries to correct the mistakes, and the other one is always trying to cover up and explain why the mistake is the holiest thing that ever happened. That, that is something that we can't tolerate. He said, you'll see, well, there's a custom that developed in the Jewish people. I'll give you an example. In Baghdad, I don't know, the ladies were swallowing the foreskins after the Brit Milan. And the Benishchai, who's no slacker when it comes to mysticism or or, or a really intense gulot, he said, you guys are crazy. Out of your mind, this is a prohibition. And he fights a war against them. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, Torah, our forefathers. He doesn't say, it's our teacher. He just says, you guys are wrong. You got to stop doing it. I can point to you dozens of halachic works that come from Eastern Europe where they clearly identify a halachic problem and then spend pages and pages and pages trying to justify why the problem is incredible. And I think that's that's really, it might not be the classic answer that you get, but it's an answer for me of, Chachamim are broken up into two camps. It's not Sephardic Rashkenazi, it's Anche Emet and people that are not Anche Emet. People that are truthful will learn to lie together and will reach conclusions based on where the truth takes them. I once got a phone call from a Hasidic rabbi who's a subscriber to the Shiviti YouTube channel on his illegal smartphone. He said, <laughs> I can't tell you where. Yeah. He says, Rabbi Halevi, I love your videos. I said, Amazing. I wore, and he tells me who he is, his background. He says, But I cannot ever say these halachot in public. So why not? He told me, it's because I'm a Dayan of this Hasidut and I have to toe the party line. That's what he said. Huh. I said, Well, then, I just respectfully, I'm going to push back on you. Then you're not really a Dayan. You know, you're just a clerk of an organization or an ideology. A Dayan is the man who has the ability to ladun. You take opinions and you look at sources and you reach conclusions. And if the truth takes you somewhere, you're not allowed to suppress your truth. In the same way a prophet is not allowed to suppress his prophecy, the same way that a chacham is not allowed to hold back the truth that they've reached. doesn't matter which team you're on. doesn't matter which side you're on. This goes so far. I mean, I'm sure you know already, you've heard a little bit about me. I'm a big fan of the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, even so, Rabbi David Shalush has a beautiful letter in which he says that if a Safar Chacham reaches a conclusion that is different than that of the Shulchan Aruch, he's not allowed to follow the Shulchan Aruch if that's where the truth took him. It's a, it's a, it's a very radical thing in his circles to say, but it's something that I think when you, when you divide the world and she'emet and people that are, that are not able to see the emet or there are other values that are more important. Tradition is more important than emet or the way we do things or the way my grandmother did things is more important than emet. I think in order to bridge divides between Savaladim and Ashkenazim, we have to be willing to have conversations and educate ourselves. And what I see very often is that everybody is so defensive and everybody is so wired in a, in a heated way that sometimes I wonder, are there, are there anybody, is there anybody that we can have a conversation with? And if we could, are, are any of us willing to change our mind if we're not correct? And so is it possible? Absolutely. Is it probable? It depends on the caliber of Chachamim that we create. And I think that there definitely is hope. I mean, that's the hope that we're all at. We're, we're hoping to one day reach a place where there will be no Sephardim and no Ashkenazim. As the Prophet says, there'll be no more kingdom of Yehuda and Israel. will become one kingdom once again. But that's going to take a lot of work. And I know that on my end, we're willing to put in that work. Can it be had done? I'm sure. When? I don't know. I think that part of the problem is um, from an early age, um, people, uh, kids are taught to essentially like, you know, not ask too many questions or they, you know, uh, exaggerate certain chachamim or something, you know, it, 
the type of education that's being received for a lot of children doesn't open them up to, you know, thinking for themselves or even thinking differently in any capacity. Halachically, hashkafically, it's just, it's, it, from the beginning, it seems like their doors are being taught to be closed. So it's a problem from the from I, young age. I agree absolutely. By the way, here here's a I'm gonna make your problem worse. Uh, so at this age, you I whatever listeners you have on your podcast have recognized that at a certain point we need to reassess the Judaism we were spoon fed as children, and we've done it. We've done the work. Maybe we're still doing the work. Maybe we're still on that journey. But we've recognized that there are places we need to go, other ways we need to think. And then what happens? we at the end of the day live in the same Jewish community we grew up in, or we move to another Jewish community that's very similar to the one we grew up in, when we plug our children right back into the same system that caused us not to be able to think until we were 20, 30, 40, wherever, wherever that age was. And I see so many good people reach good conclusions, but then put their children right back into the same problems that created our inability to see these issues earlier. And so I'm not telling you that I have a solution. I'm telling you that I, I worry even more. Not so much... What, so what is the alternative? I, I think that that there's a danger. I'm going to tell you. The Torah's alternative is At the end of the day, we have a responsibility to teach our children ourselves. It doesn't mean they can't go to school. It means they go to school, but they should know the primary source of education is home and to not be afraid to educate. The reason we're afraid of educating, twofold. We're afraid to confuse our children. And that, they're going to hear one thing. The natural hear one thing at home. Yeah. And the second fear is what are the children's teachers going to say about us? Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that I, I've experienced both. So one of my children, he was in preschool. Uh, they they made a Tubi Shabbat Seder. Now, listen, I've got my own videos on Tubi Shabbat Seder. So let's just leave that right now. But that's what they did at school. Every parent had to sponsor something. I was the genius who said, let me sponsor the fruits for the Seder, the most expensive thing I could. And I sent, I sent you can imagine, like all the fruits I could find in the grocery store. My son comes back from school heartbroken because his non-Jewish teacher told him, that uh, I I uh, sent non-kosher fruit to school. And I'm like, what is non-kosher fruit? He said, the raspberries that you sent to school are not kosher. Now, in my head, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm still thinking like, uh, in halakha, like, what is not kosher? And then I realized school has a policy that there are certain fruits that are not kosher. Who enforces the policy? The non-Jewish preschool teacher, because that makes a lot of sense. And my son thought, the teacher said that my, my dad, who's a rabbi, doesn't know better than to send me with non-kosher fruit to school. And that that's, I remember the kid who told her, their classmate of mine who had a daughter in my son's class and said, listen, just don't share from uh, um, Mr. Halevi's lunch because the food he sends to school is not always kosher. Like we, we suffer that cost. And I can't tell you that it'll ever change. I have a dear friend. He's a sofer, sofardic chacham. He says, listen, I send my kids to a school system where they come home being educated that I'm a heretic. But what can I do? That's life. I don't agree. But the other problem is is is... We're afraid of giving conflicted messages. We're afraid of teaching our children one thing at home. They're going to hear something else. And so I think that there's most toilets and sharing that I think the children are not as stupid as we think they are. And children have the ability to to carry much more complex ideas than we think. My my son, all my sons, my daughters too, they're getting bigger already. They know that at school they tell us one thing and at home we learn another thing. Ivas Al-Khanan my son, what's your name? It says, depends who's asking. You, Al-Khanan. Uh, Babi and Zaidi, Al-Khunan. Yeah, it, it doesn't, like, 
he doesn't care that he has two names. Yeah, those are like, oh, my Mora, she likes midrashim. I'm gonna tell her a midrash. I'm never gonna tell you that midrash at home. Okay, like those are certain things that are are. It's incredible because a child who's six or seven or eight can really carry that duality, and it's not heavy if you don't make it heavy. It's not that your teacher is evil and your teachers are bad and that they're destroying your mind. It's they learn differently than we will learn. And in our home, we do things a little bit different. I found tremendous success with that. And so I think to answer the solution, to just not be afraid to educate our children. It's it's not a scary thing. It's not a scary thing. Before you get to the next question, I'm brand new to a MacBook. Is there any way to silence notifications on this thing? Um, not exactly sure. Okay, I, I didn't even realize it. Yeah, I, mean, I, I literally didn't barely, barely hear it. So yeah, that's fine. Okay, great, wonderful. Okay, no, so. no, as long as I don't want it to be on your recording. I really appreciate that answer with the conflicting messages because I was always wondering about that and talked about you with that. Thank you. Um, you have a video series called Crimes of Kiruv, where you delineate certain concerns and flaws in the Kiruv Balchuva movement. Can you express your basic views on this and the, and your unique approach to being Makar of Jews? Yes. Let me start with a story. I got a phone call maybe two months ago from a guy who was from a very famous Kiruv institution in Jerusalem. They create rabbis to send all over the world. He says, this Rabbi Halevi is speaking. He said, I have to tell you that one of your videos came to our WhatsApp chat. And you are now enemy number one of all these rabbis who are, their whole life is Kiru. And you have made them into miserable people. They hate you. They think you're a list, is it? But I just wanted to call because I figured you said something in your Benamidash, probably to people that know you or understand you. And I heard it, but I don't know you. So I would love for some background as to why you say the things you say. And I really would appreciate it. I told him that I appreciate that from all the people in that WhatsApp group, he was the only one who reached out to actually hear the truth. And I said, that already tells me a lot about who you are. And so I shared with him a teaching from a very famous Nazi. It's important. You have to learn from everywhere. Rambam says, Take the truth from everywhere. Joseph Goebbels. He said that whoever wins the language wins the war. That when you use certain words, you no longer have to fight about content if you can just win the war by using slogans and catchphrases. You see this in America. I don't mean to drag you into, I don't speak politics ever, but it's, it's an issue that comes up in the realm of Anakha. Are you pro-life or pro-choice? Why do you use these words? Because what do you mean, you're against life? Which kind of human being is against life? Or you're against choice? What kind of human being is against choice? We've, we've dumbed the argument down to really cheap slogans. And if you possibly contradict something that I believe, then you must be a fascist or a, a heretic, whatever you are, a murderer, let's put it in the words. Instead of having a real conversation, what do I mean when I say what I'm saying? What is my stance really? I think the Jewish community has certain words that they've built a lot of holiness and, and, and love for. And one of them is Kiruv. Kiruv is like the baby of 80s, 90s, 2000s Judaism. Like this is, these are the people that go and save the Jewish people that are assimilating and intermarrying. And these are the heroes of humanity. They're the ones who uh, you name the organization. They're on the front line bringing Jewish children back. And you, and it's all love for these people. And all the methods are kosher and everything is fine and everything is great. As long as at the end of the day, you get him to put on a kippah, you get her to wear a skirt, you get them married to the wrong person too soon. Whatever it's going to be, we're going to make it. This is Kiruv. And if you dare question our baby, the baby of Kiruv, then who, who are you? Who, who let you 
question our our holy uh, crusaders. And I think that this is part of a problem, which is we've decided that a certain word is holy. We decided that a certain group of individuals are untouchable. And then I anything I'll say is automatically going to be uh, a hate or, or some type of, of evil thing against such people. So I'll make it very clear. I believe very much that Jewish people should know their Judaism. And I spend my whole life, my whole life, from the morning until the night, seven days a week, I work on Shabbat also, educating as many people as possible, not just Jews, but as many people as possible, about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, about Torah, about mitzvot, about everything that I possibly can. Nonetheless, I still believe that the brand of Judaism that we've dubbed Kiruv is very dangerous, and it's very problematic. Why? Because I usually deal with generation number two and generation number three or generation one, but 20 or 30 years later. And and so let me explain. We love to talk, you know, in Israel, we always talk about the number of Jews that make Aliyah. We don't talk about the Jews that are leaving. Not only do you talk about not the Israelis who are leaving, what about the Jews who made Aliyah who left? How many of us listening to this podcast have friends who made Aliyah and then left? Most of so we talk about all these number of North American Jews that are coming, but we never talk about the problems that make them leave. You see, I want people to make Aliyah to Israel, but I want them to do so as realists, not as idealists. I want you to know what you're really getting yourself into. It's not going to be roses, it's good, but it may be the best thing you'll ever do, just, just not for the reasons you think. And if you're prepared for reality, then you'll probably stay. Our rate of retention will be much better. What I see in the realm of Kiruv is all this hype about bringing Jews to be more Jewish. Usually, a lot of very external things very quickly. I told you about accepting truth from wherever it comes. I was once at the Kotel. And you know, when you live in the old city of Jerusalem, you kind of know who to stay away from and who not to stay. Like, who you avoid when you walk to the Kotel. I was coming to the Kotel to pray Avid. And some guy, he was the guy that, like, I'm avoiding. And he showed up out of nowhere from behind me and grabbed me. Old man, like, like not normal guy. And he says, Tishma, listen. Hakova, lo kovea. The hat doesn't doesn't establish anything. Hameil, lo moil. The coat doesn't help either. The tie doesn't add any humility. It's a bit but it's okay. We'll, we'll let him slide with it. Yeah. People's beards grow on their own. And kippas cost five shekels. Today they're like 17 shekels, but okay, five shekels is good. What was his message? All of this external stuff that people do doesn't count for anything. What does it help to put a kippah on a pig? Like, what, what's, the, what's the point? And I see a lot of Step one, let's get people to look Jewish. It's like a caricature of Judaism just right off the bat. Like, let's dress you up. Let's put a beer. Let's put a coat. Whatever, whatever makes people look Jewish nowadays. In some communities, it's let's walk around with a smelly towel from the mikveh. Like, everyone's got their own thing of what makes me look Jewish and what doesn't. Fine. But it's not even that. Because I would argue that a lot of people in the realm of, of Kiruv are not, are not looking to dress people up in costumes. There's a two, two sides of this. There's the marketing of Judaism in a very gimmicky used car salesman way. You know, in Judaism, all the marriages are all the best. Everybody's married. So what happens to all the people that get divorced? I don't, what, what about that? So the, they were bad Jews. Or Sometimes relationships don't work out. Or your children, they're going to grow up and they're going to respect. They're going to stand up for you. How do you explain the 3,000 kids of Bnei Brak who are living in the streets because they moved out of their parents' house? Like There are certain parts where selling HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Torah in the most most ridiculous and deceitful way. And only when people really get in do they recognize how much they've been duped. And, and even, even in the following way, you bring me, you're mekar of me. It's a word now. So you're mekar of me. You bring me in. I drink the Kool-Aid. 
I, I quit my job. I did all of that. But now you won't marry me. You won't let my kids go to your school. You won't, you won't, you won't let me read from the Torah. Whatever, whatever, fill in the blank. I'm a second class, third class citizen. I once met a guy, a breast of Hasid. Today he learns in Shibiti. His father was a, one of the original breast of our ballet, but in a certain major community. And I said, so who's your dad? Like, what family did you come from? He said, my dad. My dad is the Balchuva who wasn't good enough to get Galila. That's what he said. Which, and if I'm going to translate from Ashkenazi terms to English, my dad was the guy who wasn't good enough to even get the most basic honor that you give to children. And he grew up knowing his whole life, I'm a second-class Jew. For the very simple sin that my parents weren't born a certain way or to a certain crowd. And the elitism of that, it, it stinks of anything that I, I just, I can't handle in any case in Judaism. It's about not dividing and not separating. And, and this is another artificial separation that we don't talk about. We don't talk about the crime of what Kiruv does, even in social hierarchies in, in these communities. But let's say that all of that's not true. Let's say all of this is just my imagination and it's one person, it's five people, fine. I'm looking at the life of the person who became observant. There was a rabbi that I used to teach for in Jerusalem. He was actually a Kuban. So, uh, you know, I know we're not Kabbalists in this platform, but he was a Kabbalist, a different variety than what you're familiar with. And he once was sitting with me in the old city. We're looking out the window. So you see all those guys over there from that yeshiva where they all become religious? Yeah. So do you see how miserable they are? I said, they look pretty miserable. I said, do you know why they're miserable? I said, why? Because these are smart people. They're academics. They're professionals. They're intelligent people. And they, in their in their intel, intelligence, their intellect, they reached the conclusion there is no God, there is no Torah, there are no mitzvot. Then they came to some seminar where they proved to them in uh, two hours that there's a God, there's a Torah, whatever whatever the gimmick they, they marketed there. And now they're forced to believe in something they hate. And they're walking around like miserable people all day long because they believe in something they hate. The Judaism, when you see a person's Torah and it makes them miserable people, so how can a person really be happy then? What do I mean by miserable people? You take away a person from their family. You change their name. First thing, you become observant. You change your name. You're no longer Mike. Now you're Malkiel. I don't know. That's his name. Okay, mom, don't call me Mike anymore. I'm not Mike. I, I raised you. I, I gave birth to you. What do you mean? Tell me what your name is. No, you're not Mal okay, fine. Ma uh, you're Malkiel. Yes. Mom, I, I'm not going to eat in your house anymore. What do you mean I'm not going to eat in your house? Nothing. I can't even drink water from your cup. So now you can't eat in your house. I want you to pay for my lifestyle. Why? Because I'm going to get married soon. I quit college to be here in Israel. I'm not going to finish university because university is bad. Yeah, I'm not going to go get a job because I need to learn Torah all day long. And then what do I do? Mom, I expect you over there in Oklahoma to support me here in Jerusalem or whatever else it might be. And we create a whole world of people who are disconnected from their families, who are living a life that is completely different than what they lived beforehand. And it's all under the guise of religion. And between you and I, we know the type of Judaism they've been taught. There's a very juvenile and very, very simple Torah. And all around, I see resentful, sad people, even if they don't recognize it, because they drank the Kool-Aid and they think they see the light. But it's generation number two. Look at the children. Look at their personal lives. Look at how they operate and act. I see people that really wanted to get close to HaKadosh Baruch well-meaning well people. But I see an establishment that was out to missionize to them. Let's get some numbers. Let's count you. Let's bring you in. And after that, let's drop you like a hot potato. And I mean, I, I'm generalizing. Everything in the world is a generalization. Are there exceptions? Of course. Are there rabbis that are exceptions? Of course. Are there people that don't have that experience? Of course. I'm not telling you that everybody is that way. When I see that a person comes to Tawan Mitzvot and they have to abandon everything in their life, their names, 
their languages, their place of living, their ability to make money, their whatever whatever that is, all in the name of getting close to Kadosh Baruch Hu. I see tremendous tragedy and disaster, and nobody studied the psychological ramifications of this. Nobody studying the social ramifications of this. Nobody cares to see what happens with all the other problems that can come. So now I have a guy who yani he keeps Shabbat needs kasher. That was worth it. It was worth uprooting someone's whole world, their whole life, because of Shabbat and kashrut. I have a hard time accepting that. And forgive me if I spoke too long. No, that I think that uh, really resonates with you know what we are always talking about we had a podcast with rabbi mark wiles where we discussed you know the pros and cons of the cure movement and i think actually you touched on it in a way that's even deeper that we didn't even get into um which is that there are people who they they become quote-unquote religious through cure movements and they after like five years if they're living in a community not if they're not living in the insular kind of bubble and they're just living in like a regular community, let's say in the UK or somewhere else, not in in uh, Muncie, they're they're not going to know what hit them, and it's going to happen most most of the times. That they're, they're going to have a lot of confusion, resentment, and they're going to feel like outcasts. Um, and I think that just just treating Judaism kind of like a numbers game, like oh look how many people we can get on board, it's extremely um, it's sad to see because. Judaism isn't about the numbers. It's never been about the numbers. If it was, then Christianity and Islam, you know, quote unquote, won, right? It's it, Abraham Avinu was was one man against, you know, the entire world who thought differently. We're not we're not just this isn't about the numbers. So what I would ask you is, how can we refine Kiruv? What can we do to kind of improve uh, the situation? Because there are some good parts of it. I before I, you you answer, I want to say one thing. Um, about, for example, like Torah codes. There was something that they were promoting for many, many years. And it's like you mentioned, it's a gimmick and it's un it wasn't proven and it was actually proven. It was debunked later on. They did the same you know, kind of things with uh, Moby Dick and all that. And I think Asia Torah and all these other organizations stopped promoting it a lot. They're doing it a lot less. And the risk is just like attaching yourself to like a figurehead, a specific person or a specific idea that's not really based in our tradition, not really based in Torah itself. If if you attach yourself to that idea and then it gets debunked, you lose everything. It's you throwing all like, your eggs in one basket. Exactly. So it's it's extremely and it's a it's a pretty superficial basket. I mean, if you're becoming, if you're, what does that even mean? Because of the Bible codes, now all of a sudden I'm. Have you at Shamaim? I don't know. It doesn't even. It sounds like just. It's a shtick. Yeah. yeah. So so yeah. How yeah. how would. So before I just you brought up something. We once had a rabbi came through San Diego, and he was all about this after death experience that he had, and he came back. And there's certain people, you know, people from Aikila didn't go, but there were some people who went anyways. Yeah, and they came back. Rabbi, he had this experience. Fine. What do you do with this information? Let's listen. I can't tell you. I wasn't there with him. I don't, I don't know what he saw. I mean, it's everybody. They say he was a drug addict till he had this experience. So it could be, it could be that he just uh, was tripping on something and that was part of his experience. I can't tell you, right? But what I can tell you is what's going to happen if this guy, if he's the reason you now decided to keep Shabbat. Yeah, he's the reason. And then he, he gets debunked somewhere down the road. Or you meet a Muslim guy who had the same experience, but he tells you to read the Quran. Or 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 you find out this guy's a... a crack addict and, and he was just making money off of people speaking in synagogue all of your Judaism is going to go out the window 
because you base your Judaism on nothing. And this is what the Rambam tells us when he says in the Mishneh Torah that somebody that believes based on miracles, yesh dofi. There's always something in his heart that's going to be wrong because it's it's that quick to disappear, and that's why our Chachamim never resorted to such. I, I saw. I told someone recently. I had a, a Christian lady come speak with me. I said, "Lady, even if Jesus walked on water." It doesn't change anything. The fact that he did a miracle, great. You want to prove that? I don't know. He walked on. It doesn't matter. My faith is never going to be built on some experience that one guy had or some miracle that I, I saw or some endless bottle of Iraq being poured. Whatever you, you saw, you can't start your, your Judaism like that. I would say, and, and forgive me if I take this a little more extreme than than what most people would agree with. So I have a bidding for Giyur. And I know that conversion is not a hot topic in some places. That's okay. Uh, we, Baruch Hashem, we married to, to welcome a number of people every year to the Jewish people. It's like artisan batches, so there's no big factory happening here. It's uh, small groups of people that are, are very genuine, special people that I have the zuchut to be in their life. The first meeting that I have with any Ger Tzedek, future Ger Tzedek is, I hate the word conversion. I hate this feeling that I'm going to make you into somebody else than you were before. I know I'm going to become Jewish, but a Jewish is, it's not, I'm not changing who you are, and I'll explain. If you became Jewish and all of a sudden you're a worse human being, then I accomplished nothing with helping you become Jewish. I'm not talking now about Kilo. I'm talking about literally taking someone from Catholicism to Torah Mitzvot. I want you to learn how to go home and have dinner with your mom in her pots and pans with the food from her refrigerator. So she feels like you're still her daughter, but you also go to the Beit HaKnesset and Shabbat. This doesn't contradict each other. I need you to know how to visit your family for Thanksgiving and still be a normal human being with them. If you have children from a previous relationship that are not coming on for the ride, you're still their father. You're still their mother. Part of you becoming Jewish is, is upgrading your system. You're not becoming a worse person. It can't be that now you're going to become Jewish and you're going to throw your whole life in the past in the trash and all the people and the values and the relationships and everything that you've built. So the only way we can go forward is that we have a plan. Torah, mitzvot, in the context of the life that you already live. And I know that's not the way that most people talk about this, but I think it's the only healthy option going forward. It's the only way. So now, how do we refine it? That was your question. How do we refine it? I think that the people who are involved in this type of teaching are, are very well-meaning. They really want to help. Nine times out of 10. The person that I've met who self-proclaims Oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a Kiruv professional. Okay, I never knew that could be a profession, but it's a profession now. I'm a Kiruv professional. Great. Uh, I once asked the guy, I met him outside of a Beda Knesset after Arvit. I said, you know, hi, Ari, what's your name? So, so I said, you know, what, what do you do for a living? And he says, I'm a Poisik. I said, I didn't know that was like a thing. Like I tell people like, I'm a Poisik. Like, I didn't know that was a thing, but okay. So the guy, I'm a Kiruv professional. Fine, I'm a Kiruv professional. Most of these people really see something beautiful about Judaism. They worried about the state of Jewish affairs and they really want to do something about it. I don't think that the problem is wrong and I don't think the desire is misplaced. It's like what Rabbi Udalavi says in the Kuzari. Uh, your thoughts, what you want is good, but your actions are the wrong actions. You're taking the wrong steps to do this. Right? This is very important. To Just because you feel one way doesn't mean that what you're doing in execution is the proper thing. I think that our Chachamim always had a very consistent method of, it sounds boring. and I'm taking a few tangents. Forgive me. When I asked Mori Harav Yaakov Peretz why Sephardic yeshivot are out of style and why even the Sephardic yeshivot we have are pretty much Lithuanian yeshivot with a lot of heights and irons, like what's going on? So he said it's very simple. The Sephardic method is really boring. I know you might not agree, so let me explain. 
the Sephardic method is really, really uh, standardized. It's very, the texts mean what they say. We know how to read things. There's no there's no room for all your vartlach and your little cute divrei Torah and your nice little, the, the Torah is really methodical. It requires discipline. You have to study it for a long time. You can't just do this. It, it requires work and dedication and it pays off, but it, it's, it's about, it takes effort and energy and diligence, something which our generation almost has none of. And so instead, we've created like junk food Torah. So like where it's like pop Torah. We've created very simplistic Jewish ideas. Half of them you can find in the self-help section in Barnes and Nobles. You just have to put Jewish words in it. And, and now you become a Kira professional. The, the desire is good. What, am I telling the truth? No, I'm saying, yeah. You no, agree? Okay, oh, my God. So true. So yes, if everything I heard, you see, I hear a lot. People, the Kabbalah says, I'm like, that Kabbalah doesn't say that was Dale Carnegie. And then, but, but it's okay, you know, it's close enough. Like, <laughs> really, really, like, okay. okay, so, so and what I see in the Sephardic method is boring in that I'm not going to try to excite you or enchant you or, or reel you in with some, I'm going to teach, what, what do Sephardic rabbis do? The Sephardic rabbis from the generation of yesterday that I knew and that I'm familiar with. They didn't. You said, I, I made you said to me on my YouTube channel. I have to give like provocative class titles for people to click on the link and listen to it. Right. That's that's what they have to do. But yesterday's chacham was like, okay, now we finish shacharit. We're studying Tanakh. Okay, now we're done the mikra. Okay, let's go learn Mishnah. Uh, you come back in the afternoon. We're gonna recite Rambam. You're gonna come later. We're gonna do some shulchan aruch. Maybe if you come at night, in the middle of the night, they'll be reading Zohar. Whatever it's gonna be, but it's gonna be a constant study. Every time you come to pray, every time you come to eat, every time you come, you're constantly learning and you're learning and you're learning and over time like Rabbi Akiva saw, that water drips into the rock and you get absorbed with classic Jewish texts, authentic Jewish learning, a genuine Tamid Chacham who didn't study for 10 months or 11 months in some Kiruv ordained program and run out to the world and teach them everything I learned in the last 11 months, but genuine Torah from a genuine Chacham over a serious amount of time. And what you see that happens in people is real quality change that lasts forever. Not things that I, I, they don't disappear overnight. I don't abandon them overnight because it didn't take them overnight. It didn't happen to me overnight. And I think that there is the no alternative. You get the fundamental. What? Fun that's fundamental. It. That's what he's like, doing. Like, you know what? Yeah. The bus driver that took me to Yerushalayim a few years ago on Purim, he was a Yemenite guy. Yeah, no kippah, no nothing. He read to me from we left until... Until we got to Yerushalayim, it's an hour and 50 minutes. I was in the He just started from Bereshit and he went. I think he was uh, halfway to Shumot. I don't know where he went. He just went. His father made sure he knew Mikra well. That's what his father wanted from him. It doesn't matter if you're going to be a bus driver. It doesn't matter if you're going to wear a kippah. I want you to know your Torah and you can't take it away from him. And he's going to raise his kids to be proud Jewish people. And it's not going to disappear one day because he heard a YouTube video that chattered his faith. And, and I think that the, the alternative is something that requires a lot of work and patience and no gimmicks and no tricks and no marketing. And if I have to resort to a term of Chacham Fa'ur, I'm going to tell you it's enough of the poets and the scribes, uh, uh, the poets and the, and the, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and, and more, no magicians. We're not working here. It's not a, it's not a show. Uh, and, and more than that, it's a gentle persuasion. Mm -hmm. It's a persuasion of time and effort and energy and learning and, and just letting things happen organically. I this think that's the, the only story, thing. This is the story of Eliyahu and Avi basically in a nutshell, right? It's, it's, it's the, using using all these the theatrics and all these things are not going to have a long-term effect on people. You have to... It's, it has it to worked be, for what it needed to happen, but it didn't last. Right. It didn't last, exactly. And, and and I think that... So a couple of things, if I may. Um, Please. I think that you're touching upon the fact that a lot of the Kiruv world today, we lose our humanity. 
in in our uh, inspiration and you know like and, and and you like you you kind of you jump into this world it's like a magical world in a way almost and then you you lose your fundamental humanity you go home and everything doesn't like you know you, you can't even appreciate your home anymore because the home seems like somewhere where it's disconnected from your high you know what i mean it's everything becomes you don't know what to make of everyday life in a way the way you go more than that forget i'm interrupting you but go sure. more than that the first thing i learned when i signed up for that halakha 101 course is i'm 35 years old and i never knew there's an order in which way to put my shoes i didn't know that so right shoe and left shoe and, and so all of a sudden here i am i'm a phd but I don't know how to put on my shoes. And so what does that do to me? It tells me I don't know anything. I have to erase my brain and start over again. And that's the most dangerous thing a human being could do in his life. Yeah. You, you, Forgive me for interrupting. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this guy. So I think so. So I, I could relate a little bit because I remember when I was younger, um, I wouldn't call myself a Balchuva per se because I, I did have a background. My family it was always Shomer Shabbat, Shomer Kashrut, but it wasn't necessarily... Um, uh, the, the atmosphere, you know, we weren't like learning Torah in the home type of thing. It was more traditional based. Um, and I remember that when I got like, you know, into Torah and stuff, there was so much inspiration pumped into me that I almost didn't know how to act when I'd get home. It was like, almost like when the high would go down, I didn't want, it's like, it's like a drug. You understand what I mean? Like, you know, you're like, you're just want to get back to that high so you 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 know so you'll put i put myself in the room i'll learn whatever i'll have to learn you know in order to get back to that high point or whatever and it's like you lose touch you lose touch with your family your friends you kind of like you're 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 lost you know what i mean and it's funny because when you say this the one thing that i was never doing which i should have been doing is i never did the fundamental stuff i jumped straight to all the stuff that sound amazing and sound lofty, but was I able to really, really, really study Tanakh properly? No. You know what I mean? I couldn't. You know what I mean? Was I able to pick up a Mishnah Nagmar and to learn it by myself at that time? No. You know what I mean? Yet I was flying in these, you know, imaginary highs. You know what I mean? And and I can, and so I really related with what you were saying. I understand what you're saying. And I also understand and I now as I'm kind of reversing course and I'm trying to learn the fundamentals and I'm trying to slow burn it the way you were saying, I actually see more change than I've ever had before. True internal change, not, you know, fake change, real internal change, you know, no fluff, no fluff. And, and my humanity is more developed, not less developed. So thank you for that. I, I I, really no, of course. And I think that, you know, I, I have a friend who's a Chabad rabbi. I'm gonna, and he, I tell him, listen, to you, what is the most important book ever written? And what's that answer? Tanya. Okay, that's okay. So he's allowed to feel that way. That's fine. I said, tell me, if the Tanya is the most incredible gift to humanity that that you know Hashem ever gave to us, so can you just tell me why you teach that to every single person who walks to the front door? Like, don't you think you should teach them how to read first, or like learn a little bit better sheet first? I mean, I let's say I agree with you that this is like, why do you teach calculus to people before they know basic arithmetic? According to you, and what I see is that people are let's feed you highs, and then and then the rest will kind of fall into place, but never falls into place. All that happens is the high disappears. And I have a friend who recently was looking for a job as a rabbi, and they said we need a rabbi who can also run the youth program and can infuse it with ruach. Now, Ruach is American uh, English, uh, Hebrew, for, for inspiration. And he called me and said, what did I do with this information? 
is the only kind of ruach I know. Person goes like that. But what does it mean to infuse people with ruach? Is literally nothing. It's nothing of substance. You got people high, they come back, and then Sunday hits them, and then what happens? Monday work happens. What happens? Tuesday my wife fights with me. Then what happens? I have nothing to go with because the ruach doesn't help me then. I think we're so busy. Everything is inspirational. Everything is transformational. Everything is, is, is but nothing is real. Nothing. Well, that's another thing about nothing is real. The kind of mystical approach in Kiruv, which is very common as well with Neo Hasidut and all these things, is that it kind of places reality as almost like that's this what you see is not real. And there's something deeper going on. There's always there's a different reality under the surface. And what happens is it takes people out of, uh, you out know, of touch. out of touch with what's actually happening. Yep. So they're so focused on, and I think the Torah actually is very careful to keep us away from that kind of thinking because it's it's always like it doesn't talk about Mashiach, the next world, doesn't talk about uh, you know Olam and resurrection because we're supposed to focus on what's happening now in front of us, right? We're not, we're, not, we're not dealing with the afterlife here. We're dealing with what's going on right now in front One of us. One step at a time. <laughs> and the famous the famous Paitanim, the Beatles. They wrote all about uh, Lucy in the sky with diamonds and all kinds of fantastic things that people see. But at the end of the day, it's not, nothing is real. Nothing to get hung about. There's a certain, uh, what you're seeing, people are living in a false reality. You actually, you mentioned something to me. And I want to say, I don't want to mention the name, the other name of the person in the story, because today in my old age, I've learned their crimes and what they've done to people. There's a famous Kiruv celebrity of of yesteryear. And uh, he once met Rabbi Tzvi Hudakuk, the son of the famous Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak See, I heard you're very successful in America with Kiruv, and you're getting even uh, the hardest drug addicts, you're getting them off of drugs and into the Batei Midrash and the school. Tell me, what are you doing? He says, what do you teach people? Like, What do you teach a person? He says, I teach them, and he mentioned, I teach them chasidut of ishbitz and of uh, breslov. That's what he said. <laughs> and uh, don't guess the person, please. And Rav Svi Hurakuk, said, ah, I understand. So you're just replacing one drug with another drug, and that's all that's happening here. And, and what I understood from his answer was, there's no chokhmah to, to, if you're tripping on this, I'll come trip on that instead. Like, there's no, there's no, I'm not, I'm not putting down chasidut and kabbalah, I'm not, I'm not in that realm. All I'm saying is, at the end of the day, there are basics that we all agree on and that many people don't know. And that's the only thing that, that fortifies a person and builds them. And I really, really think that Sephardic Judaism was lost to the sensationalism of this whole, and forgive me, it's not Kiruv. So what is Kiruv? Kiruv markets Orthodox Judaism to the world. And if there's anything that Sephardic Judaism is not, it's not Orthodox. And we can maybe talk about that if you like. But for right now, Orthodox Judaism is this whole Judaism that is being marketed by Kiruv salesmen. And it's the antithesis of everything that we know in the world. I'm not even talking Andalusian Svarad, old Svarad. I'm talking Svarad like 50 years ago. The old man who sat in the back of the Bed Midrash and he knew that now he's finishing his Chok Israel every day. What is Chok Israel? It's every person, every day after tefillah is learning basics. What does the parasha say? What does the what, what does the What does the ketuvim say? What does the mishnah say? What Talmud say? Fine. So he read a little bit of Zohar. Okay. So he read a little bit of Musa. Fine. At that, at a certain point, you've been doing this for so many years. You can't take away from me the Torah that I know. The problem is that I don't think we've marketed real Torah properly. And I think that a lot of what we do is like what we keep it to ourselves. Our don't hold this to yourself. There's also an article. I'm so sorry. Sorry to interrupt. No, I would just please interrupt. 
My wife yeah. once told me, I said, why do you interrupt me so much? I said, if I don't interrupt you, I'll never get a chance to talk. So please. <laughs> no, I was just, I want to say that there's also, I've noticed in the cure world that there's an alarm. It's alarming how little Torah is actually being taught. It's alarming. It's, it's almost like they don't trust the Torah to do the job, but Hashem entrusted the Torah to do the job. If we learn Tanakh, we learn that should do the job because that's what Hashem gave us, right? So it's almost like you're using all these other things to get to the thing that you don't even trust for it to do its own job. Yeah. Meaning, yeah. you, that's what, you know? I was once with Moriah Rav Yaakov Peretz at a rabbinic convention. Some rabbi got up to tell a story all about how the soldiers were in Gaza and Eliyahu and Navi up here. Some, some sad story like this. And Rav Peretz stood up. I mean, he stood up. And he's a man with a lot of Yerat Shemayim. So he's like, I mean, he's a, he got up, he started speaking to this man and said, are you lying to people in public? Are you not embarrassed of yourself? He said, no, I want to be mechazet. He says, the Torah, the Torah lo skuka lashkarim shulcha. The Torah does not need your lies. Someone who knows the Torah, the Torah will sell itself. The Torah doesn't need you to lie for it. And, I, and then those words have always been like etched into my mind. The Torah lo skuka lashkarim shulcha. We don't need to lie for the Torah. The Torah, if I believe what David Hamir, if I believe, if I believe that the Torah is the most beautiful gift that Hakadosh Baruch ever gave us, then why would I try to sell it in a way that is that is deceitful, in a way that isn't real? And this is, like I said, I want to reiterate: those who are doing this work really genuinely want to do good. Of Part of what you said is how little Torah is being taught. I want to just push back on that. And that is, you have to ask yourself a question. How much Torah needs to be studied in order to become such a professional? So how much, if I have two cups of water in my water bottle, but you have a a, a big jug, I can't fill up your jug because I only have two cups of water. If I expect that in a 10-month program, 11-month, whatever it is that people are studying nowadays to to get semicha, then and that's all you learn, I mean, what happens? They became a rabbi at the age of 20, 22, 25, whatever that's going to be. And they've never cracked open a book since. They've never learned Torah since. So I gave someone a credential. There's no continued education. There's no, The beard got bigger, sure. Maybe the coat gets longer. Whatever happens, happens. But at the end of the day, the brain is just as small as it was then. There's so little that can possibly be given. It's just regurgitation over and over. The same ideas, the same old... In, in a certain circle that I used to be in, they called it canned Torah. They got a lot of canned Torah, like, you know, you, you, and they, I'm canned. Every once in a while, you open up a new can of corn and you like pour it out to everybody. But there's nothing refreshing. There's nothing, there's nothing, because really, really, how much sensationalism can you sell? And and I think that we find it's 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 bankrupt. At the end of the day, that Judaism is declared bankruptcy. And there's like a dying, it's like a fight. Like, let's, let's keep pumping out more and more. But at the end of the day, there's nothing to pump out. I'll ask you an honest question. Orthodox Judaism of the last 60 years. How many books have come out from that realm that if you didn't have them on your bookshelf, nothing would change in your life? And how many monumental works? I forget Israel. It's talking about American Orthodoxy. How many works have been written since the death of the last few great American rabbis by this Orthodox Jewish community that have changed the course of Judaism? that have offered anything novel to the Jewish world that we never heard, anything that have... Cha- nothing. There's nothing to offer. We're hashing... I mean, I, I, you want to argue? Rav Moshe Feinstein, finally, you're going to put whatever books of the... Once that generation died, what's left here? What is this Judaism? So the Judaism, it's pumping out just stuff, but nothing real. Regurgitations. It's regurgitation. Regurgitation. That's really what it's it is. It's in the word of it's like a dog who keeps coming back to his own vomit. What can you do? 
Yeah. And then you get surprised why people find inspiration somewhere else. Listen, I meet some guru from India. The guy's actually been meditating on a hilltop for 22 years. He might be crazy, but he actually put in 22 years of work. The guy knows how to explain something in a sophisticated... He actually knows how to speak English. It's something incredible. He can he can formulate a sentence properly. That's something I didn't see from half the rabbis I, I knew once upon a time. So the, there's something that we're lacking. And instead of instead of addressing those issues, we're always trying to, let's let's market it better. And then the more sushi, buy the Parsha class, and everybody will come. Well, there's also, let's do some martinis, well, Hanukkah, and the menorahs. I think, I think the, the feeling, there's a general feeling that no matter how far we grow or how much we grow, we can't ever be, you know, we're taught, like we can't ever be this rabbi or that. You can't question that rabbi. You can't. And the tradition was always, you know, that's what being a rabbi is. It's that you're, you're studying and you can question things and you can develop more new ideas. And this, I, like, I feel like today, this is kind of like, we're, we're dissuaded from, you know, thinking outside the box and having chidushim and, it's kind of like, you know, you're put down right away. Oh, how, how dare you even have your own chidush? We were talking to Rabbi Foreman um, on the podcast, and he was saying, like, he had all these chidushim, and they were like, how dare you? You know, people in the beginning were, were had a problem with this. How dare you have these, you know, who are you to have these ideas that go, you know, that that the chazal didn't bring up? It's 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 really, it's it's mind-boggling. Say the people who mentioned all the ideas that chazal never could have dreamt up. Yeah. yeah, but but this is something I'll just say. In Hebrew, we say hadag The fish always thinks from the head. What do I mean? In the words of Chachamim, it says when the judges judged. Our rabbi say whenever you see a generation of Jewish people that has problems, go check the leadership of the Jewish people. That's always where the problems are. I have two articles online called rabbinic violence. Uh, and I, I discuss some personal rabbinic violence that I've experienced over my years of being a rabbi. And I, I always reach a common denominator. And that is that I was trained by a very different type of chacham. One that pushed me very hard to think independently. One that never allowed me to come ask a question without first, what do you think? What is your research? Which, what, what, did you, what conclusion did you reach before I give you an answer? And then always encourage me, even though he gave an answer, never just to listen to his answer, but to, if it resonates with him, me, call it And if not, not. That I met other rabbis that were taught already from their rabbinic training. You'll never be a posek. You'll never be able to make this. There's always going to be a 1-800 number at the bottom of your smicha certificate to go call somebody when you don't know the answer. Call a real rabbi. Yeah, we'll send you out to Tennessee. We'll send you out to wherever, California. We're going to send you. And at the end of the day, you should just know your place. And there's a lot of this know your place in, in, in the current Orthodox community. And it starts with the rabbis. There's we're talking about a, a vertical Judaism. It's, it's vertical already from there, where the rabbi in the synagogue knows. Listen, I'm just a rabbi of a synagogue, so I don't convert people. I don't. I, there's certain things I don't do because that's the rabbi of the Bedin. The Bedin rabbi he does this, and the one in Israel he does that, and there are chief rabbis. All of a sudden, there's a whole hierarchy of rabbis. And if the rabbi is emasculated, then you can imagine how upset he feels when you're not acting like an emasculated person. When all of a sudden, and I don't mean masculated like like manly or not. I mean in the sense of if you've taken away the rabbi, the rabbi's ability to question, to think freely, to come up with their own chidushim and conclusions and novel interpretations of Torah, then what do you expect when he meets a congregant who wants to think differently? Well, who do you think you are? I can't do it. What is he saying? He's not saying you can't do it. He's saying, I can't do it. So how dare you do it? And and we're living in a world in which the rabbis, they're violent only because they were told they can't. I, there's here, we just baked matzot in my community. 
uh, last Sunday we baked matzot, Baruch Hashem. We baked soft matzot here in San Diego. The first year that I baked matzot, I heard some of the rabbis who anyways don't like me, so I didn't lose any friends. I heard those rabbis say, now we really got to get him. He's doing uh, dangerous things. Who does he think he is? He knows how to bake a matzah. I'm thinking to myself, who does he think, how hard is it to bake a cracker? I forgot, I mean, I'm soft. Okay, but like, how, how hard is it? This is literally, we baked it by mistake when we were leaving Egypt. It didn't, you know, this whole story, you know, that's what the story says. Yeah, there's nothing so complicated. My grandmother used to bake matzot every morning for bread. Like, they didn't eat matzot from yesterday. She baked fresh matzot every morning. What kind of, per- my, my grandmother didn't have a whole crew of sanitation workers and aprons and, and special lights and, and a flower room and a water room. And she, my grandma just baked matzot. Like, she baked lafas the whole year. She did it on Pesach. Just, you know, a quicker amount of time with a little more precautions but we've reached a world where that rabbi sees us doing something so fanatic like baking our own matzot and he loses his top because I was told that I have to buy the one with a special hechsher from the grocery store and you think you can do it on your own well if I can do it for sure you can do it and a lot of this suppression of people and and their ideas and, and new ideas comes because the leadership is already taught not to ask questions and not to so if the leader can't ask questions how are the people going to be able to do it yeah, and um, you know, they, unfortunately, some of them operate like a mafia, so you have to really be careful. No, there's it's there is a cancel culture within you know rabbinic circles. You you can't. I'm sure you know very well. Um, people trying to take away your livelihood or whatever it is because you're not you know walking the company line. Um, so I think that what I wanted to lead into is related to this, which is how do we approach the dogmatic religious fanaticism in the modern age, like uh, the suppression of science and technology, and especially the argument from authority, right? Like the, the gedolim culture, that whole that whole idea. Um, and, the, and now that we were kind of talk, talking about it before, the fire and brimstone kind of bully tactics of uh, the, the Kiruv Sephardic rabbis that, that tend to, you know, have instill an influence, fear. instill fear, and use these kind of uh, uh, pseudo scientific arguments uh, for and mystical kind of uh, um, you know ideas that are kind of shaky already to begin with, but you know everyone just takes them at their word. So I think that this is the question, and forgive me for I'm going to push a little. The question innately, in my opinion, it shouldn't be a question. The reason is very simple. I think that we have to get out of the business of of combating or counteracting anything in the world. I really think that most of the time when we engage with people that are not willing to listen, we just end up getting angry and we get frustrated and we're like screaming ourselves till we're red in the face and there's nobody home on the other side to even begin to comprehend the things that you want. Arab parents once told me like, you know, you, you see the cow eating the wrong food. You start hitting it with the stick. It doesn't help to hit the cow with the stick. It doesn't know what you want from it. Like the, Unfortunately, some of the people that you're talking about, they lack the the capacity to to process that information which you're trying to share with them. I think the first step is always, let's find the people. There are so many Jews in the world, and so many non-Jews in the world that are interested in Torah. There's enough people in the world that actually want to listen and actually want to hear that we genuinely need to focus on them first. Mm-hmm. I know I'm, I'm not circumventing your question. I'm, I'm going to address it. Oh, but please. we spend so much of our energy talking about them and them and them and then try to get to them and how could we change it. And I stop, stop trying to fix a system that's broken and deal with people that lack the ability to change and identify like you have in this podcast. I'm sure that by now you've identified there's a certain type of listener. There's a certain type of personality that, that they are the 
they're the target audience of this podcast. At the end of the day, you know, maybe in the beginning you were worried about saying something that would be controversial in that circle or that circle. Then you realize they don't subscribe to the Judaism Demystified podcast. They're not listening anyways. And even if they listen, they anyways think you're heretic. So it doesn't matter what you're going to say, right? There's nothing you're going to do right for them. So you have to focus who is my target audience. When I focus on my target audience, then all my energy goes into conducive work. Everything that I teach is now received. Every every idea that I share is at least considered, even if not accepted, but it's considered by people who have the ability to engage and to debate and to, to converse about these things. And so step number one, it does all of us a lot of good if we focus on the people that are actually receptive to the type of Torah that we're teaching. And and you, you might underestimate this. When I wrote my book, Yishalom, so my wife, at that time, I was very involved in the local Jewish community, and I was the mafia that you mentioned was pretty much day-to-day existence of my life. I was dealing with mafiosos from here and mafiosos from there and every kind of mafia you can imagine. And and my wife said, you're spending so much energy trying to convince people. Look, the Rambam says this, the Gemara says that. You're arguing people. They don't care about the truth. I said, why don't you stop talking to them? Just cut them out entirely and deal only with the people that actually want to listen. And literally overnight, so I published a book in a few months. I was able then to start a, a, a channel with thousands of videos. We have a Shiviti Bet Midrash online with about 4,000 people in it. It's not it's not 13 million Jews, but I've identified the people in the world that are receptive to this message and to focus your energy only on them. And you do a kindness. Why? Because nobody focuses on them. These are always the people that are left out of every Jewish conversation. So finally, we're able to include them like you do here. You're including people that otherwise don't have a room in the Bede Midrash. There's no chair for them in the Bede Midrash. The second part of this, I think, comes naturally. So I, really, if you haven't picked it up by now, I'm a big fan of, of things happening naturally and organically. And it's not because I live in California. It's just in general, it's my 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 approach. I am the type of people argumentative and fights with people. Really, really, I don't care what other people do. I don't. I want the people that do things right to feel free to do them. So I will fight only for the reason that we don't live in a Spanish Inquisition. Then you're not going to hunt down the members of my Kila anymore because they don't keep kosher like you or they don't pray like you or whatever. They don't believe like you. So that we'll fight for. But at the end of the day, when you have something strong, when you have a strong group of people doing something together, inevitably it attracts all the people that would light attracts. Uh, in the words, if I'm, you know, we're quoting from all over the place. Harav Kuk, the father. I'm quoting more Ashkenazi rabbis than Samaritan ones. Harav Kuk, the father, he once said, Hatzadikim Hamitim, the real tzadikim. Enam kovlim al harisha and the tzadik. They don't complain about evil, they just add righteousness. Enam kovlim al kifira and emuna. They don't complain about heresy, they add faith. And he had a few more things like that. So much of our energy should not be spent on, on fighting, but to the contrary. When I add light to the world, I become a lighthouse. This group of people, this Bermidash, this podcast, whatever it is that we're dealing with, the school, this will attract people inevitably. The people who are disenchanted and the people who are, they'll anyways get burned out from there. It's a matter of time. And if it's not them, it's their kids. They need a place to go. And you need to be the one to build it. And all of our energy should be focused on that. How to counteract it? Just with good. Somebody who, somebody who who's eaten garbage food their whole life and they come to a gourmet restaurant, there is a chance they might not appreciate the food. It could be. There is such a chance. Uh, but at the end of the day, when I taste good, healthy food, I can't help but say, I like this stuff. I don't want to go back to there. And we just need to offer opportunities as much as possible, as often as possible for people to taste healthy, healthy Torah. And when they taste healthy Torah, you really spoil it for them because they're not really able to go back to the potato chips 
they were eating before. How can they even compare? It's not, it's not comparable. When I learn from real chachamim, I read real texts and I see these are life-changing ideas. I'm not able to then go back to that that class, that seminar, that that whatever whatever event it is. Uh, and that's something that we can do and you, you're already doing it. And lastly, about the fire and brimstone rabbis. <laughs> I know you had an opinion about the, the simple-mindedness and I, I agree, I don't disagree. I can't tell you that I can logically explain why if someone comes and tells you, you're going to go to hell, you're going to come back as a reincarnation of a cat, you're going to burn in boiling feces for eternity. And then people, what is their reaction? They give them money and then, I don't know, decide to keep kosher. Like I, I, For me, in my head, it doesn't compute. Like I don't know exactly why. Like you, you just told me I'm going to hell and I'm coming back as a cat. So why should I give you? But that's how it works. I, my, my feeling is there's something a lot deeper. Uh, psychologically wrong in this situation than than just that. My father, who should live and be well, has a theory that people who have unhealthy relationships with their parents likely develop unhealthy relationships with their father in heaven. Uh, but I don't want to pin everybody on unhealthy relationships. I will say that people who have an unhealthy relationship with Kadosh Baruch Hu and with Torah, they it's like someone who's in an abusive relationship. They, they just const- even if they get out of the relationship, they always go back to the arms of somebody else who's abusive. If I'm used to a God that hates me and a Torah that hurts me, and then I'm going to keep going to the guys who hurt me and abuse me. And especially when they offer me that, hey, if you subscribe to my channel, you're going to go to heaven, or you vote for me, you're going to go to heaven. So of course I'm going to hang out with you because I mean you're offering me golden tickets to heaven. So I think, what can what can we react to that? Because I'm not sure that we're even dealing with the same solar system. I would like to tell you that we are, but I don't think that we are. Right. And and maybe maybe the only hope is education. Education, education, education. The more they learn or the more they're exposed to ideas that will broaden them, the more, the less attracted they'll be to such a, an approach. That's my only hope. And so I, I try not to combat or debate or at the end of the day, nobody's has time for that. Just create content that is good, create Torah that is good, and people will come. That's sooner exactly. or later. We're, we're both doing that. You know, we're, we're, we're not debating and all that. It's really, there's no point. Like you said, there, there's... But the thing is, it's just uh, disheartening when you see like how many views some of these people get. You're like, wow, this is I can't believe, you know, how many people are listening to this, Jewish or not Jewish. Um, but it does give me hope that there are people who reach out and say, like, you know, ever since we listened to this podcast or that, it kind of opened our eyes, and we, you know, that does happen. So that's that's nice to see. Um, and I want to end on one thing because I know we were pressed for time, uh, but. This is something that we, for me, I'm, I'm I'm hours behind you. So for me, it's still early in the night. You guys are the ones who have to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have we have another podcast in the morning, so we have to go to well, sleep. <laughs> so um, we wanted to um, end off by asking a question that you know a few of our friends wanted to know because when I send your video around, people are always like uh, some of the comments that come back are like. Why is he dressed like a you know, like a Rav Vadi Yosef or something? <laughs> <laughs> like what? You know, or like, what? What? Why is he wearing a Hasidic garb? You know. So, I want to understand kind of the, um, you know, this, this tradition that you have and where it comes from. I believe you have spoken about it once on one of your videos, but I don't recall the reason. So maybe you can uh, help us out there. Could be, and hopefully, whatever I'll tell you now will match whatever I said somewhere else. Because I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't remember uh, outside of my kila discussing. Oh, this is just this is it's a, it's a special question. So hopefully. Uh... The answer will be uh, there's 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 everything is intentional, so nothing here happens by accident. 
nothing is a tradition either. But I, I want to answer as honestly as I possibly can. At the end of the day, when we look at one of my first books that my father gave me when I went to Yeshiva, he inscribed in it because he knew that I was a person like to fight and argue, and he knew he was sending me to the lion's den of places that you know people were not going to agree with the Torah that we believed in. And he said, learn to pick your battles wisely. And every, and every general in every war knows that you can't win all the battles. The point is not to win every battle. You don't get points for winning battles. The only thing that matters is if you're going to win the war. Winning the war is the only part that matters. You have to strategically lose battles in order to win the war. I am aware that there are many people who are going to disagree with me on this. This is my personal opinion. It's, it's mine. You, I don't, I'm not saying that I'm right either. You're this right. is simply my theory for today. Yes? Listen, when I'm in my house on Pesach, I, I wear a robe and a turban and a talit on my head. I should tell a true story at the time where the police showed up because, like, what's going on in this house? So the, the, but at the end of the day, if I were going to come to Yeshiva, to a community with, with you want me to dress like Yosef? He wore a suit. I will come with sandals and, and a jalabiyah and a, and a tarbush like my grandfather. Yeah. And I'll wear a talit and a tefillin like my grandparents did. And I'll come in a better of What's going to happen? I'll be a, a spectacle. It'll be a mockery of whatever will happen there. And nine times out of 10, looks at first sight matter. People have already, some of the programming, they've been programmed what is a rabbi, what is not a rabbi. What is a person we listen to? What is a person we don't listen to? And I think that sometimes, and I have no desire to be some purist Sephardic of yesterday. All I care about is the Torah of our Chachamim will make it to my children's generation. That's the only reason I'm here. It's the only thing I want is to see a better future, for, not for Svaradim, for all Jews tomorrow to know that there's an option aside from the Judaism they've been fed until today. If part of that means to dress in a way that is authoritative or respectable in the eyes of a large portion of the Jewish community, then, then I will. Uh, in terms of particular clothing, so I listen, I have a, a this is the Sephardic pride in me. If I'm anyways going to dress like some Polish guy from yesterday, it better be like the 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 head of all the Polish guys. So it's going to be like the chief rabbi. I'm not going to be the schlepper rabbi. Okay? So if that's what he's going to do, I'm going to do it too. Because if he can do it, I can do it also, right? But, and I, it sounds funny, but at the end of the day, when you come into a room, it's listen, I, there are some places that I go, I know very clearly not to dress in a certain way because you come off dressed too religious. These things matter. They sound silly, but they matter. Just like everybody knows you create content, your background of your show matters and the image that you put as a thumbnail matters. And my purpose is to create as few obstacles for a person who's listening to be able to accept the content that's coming right now. And if the Ashkenormative Eurocentric world that I'm in right now expects that certain people look a certain way, I don't mind. And if that would change, that I wouldn't mind. And you know, when I'm in Israel, certain clothing has negative connotations. So I'm careful. I don't want to look like the parasite who doesn't serve in the army, who doesn't pay taxes. There's, there's, a, there's a flip side to this whole conversation. What I have found, though, is that those outside of the very religious community are a lot more open-minded in who they'll accept messages from than those inside of the community. Mm -hmm. I would rather be able to speak in every place in the world and not put someone off by a presentation. Uh, and therefore... That that's half of the reason of why things are done. As to the Hasidic clothing that I wear, because I'm sure people ask, I'd like to say that this is my personal protest against the Hasidic colonization of Judaism. 
So uh, the gold robe that I wear on holidays, I've never worn it outside of my community. So I'm kind of surprised how people know that I wear it. But that gold robe is not a Hasidic clothing. That gold robe is old Sephardic clothing. That is an Iraqi robe. All of the Sephardic Chachamim, the Benish Chai included, you'll see him wearing the striped robe that's gold. There's a brown coat that goes over it so the Goyim don't get jealous of you when you walk in the streets. You're wearing fancy clothing. Uh, the white clothes are for holidays. The, the black clothes are for weekdays. They were Mekubalim. They were careful about certain colors. And what happened was that when the Hasidim came to Israel, they were getting killed by the Arabs because they were looked at as the new crusaders. Like they don't, they're not Jews. They wear funny clothing. They speak German. And they're here to kill us with their Christianity. So there was, there were, Hasidim were getting massacred. So what happened? The Hasidim made a note. Let's switch over to Sephardic clothing. And that's how all these Hasidim in Yerushalayim got gold jalabiyas and other big belts. They all took over the clothing. And, it's kind of, and what happened? The Sephardim, come the rise of the state of Israel, all went to Ashkenazi Shivot and came out with black hats and suits and everything else. And it's kind of like what one ancient African chief said. is that, You know, when the white man came to my land, uh, he was holding the Bible and I was holding the land. He told me to close my eyes and pray. And when I opened up my eyes, he was holding my land and I was holding the Bible. Yeah. Uh, the same thing happened to the Savadim. And I view this all as a game. My grandfather, if he would ask, like, I, I, I want you to wear my clothing the way I, he, it would be a joke for him. I think Sephardic Jews in general didn't care so much about the dress as long as it was dressed at the respectable people in the place where they lived. If you were in the UK, you'll see the Chachamim wore top hats and they had canes. And if you were in Baghdad, so they look like that. And in Morocco, they look like that. Whatever the respectable people of that place were. And so I hope I hope that I answered it somewhat. Uh, but I, for me, it's not as important as it is for other people. But my whole goal is to win the war and not to win the battle. So I don't want to die on the hilltop of authentic Sephardic Hebrew clothing. I'd rather die on the hilltop of, wow, I've created a generation of people who are learning to laugh from Aruch HaChamim. And then, you know what? They won't care about clothing anyways. That's my whole hope. Love that. Really nice. Good good message. Yeah, I, cannot tell much, I cannot tell you how much yeah, I this enjoyed was, this. This was in, I met in my top five. Really so... This was amazing. I really appreciate the time. I appreciate overall, not just what you do, but the cloud. this conversation was very pleasant. I wish we could go for hours. I'm personally inviting you uh, to come join me in San Diego for a Shabbat, for a Chag, for a weekday, for whatever you can. And God willing, when I'm in your neck of the woods, we'll see each other too. Like I started, I'm going to end. What you're doing is creating a place for people to learn Torah. And just for the record, if you want to talk about clothing and presentations, I never did a podcast before. So what you're able to do in a podcast and what you're able to do not as formal rabbis of communities, you're able to reach places that I can only dream of reaching. And what you're doing is something that that you're bringing Torah and light of a Kadosh Baruch Hu to places that I don't think other people get to and not with gimmicks and not with tricks and not with any of the, the cheap acts that we spoke about earlier, but by bringing authentic content from authentic people to the world. And I just appreciate that you were willing to bring me on here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon. So you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.